all my entrepreneur listeners out there, how important is branding to you? How much of your time and your resources do you invest in making sure that your brand represents you and your company accurately and in a powerful way? Well, today, with the help of my awesome guest for the week, we will talk about incorporating science and soul into your marketing. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another week on Scale Up with Nick Bradley. Thank you for sending in your suggestions on topics you want to be discussed on the show, which is why today I present to you an interview that will help my business owner listeners build a brand that is powerful, trustworthy, and persuasive. My guest this week is Jason Harris, author of the best-selling book, The Soulful Art of Persuasion recipient of the CEO of the year 2021 by The Drum, the four A's, 100 people who make great advertising great, and a 2020 campaign US 40 over 40 for his noteworthy contributions to the advertising and marketing industry. Needless to say, Jason is here to provide us with powerful practical advice on how to turn your business from being good to being great. And for most of you who have been following me since my early podcast days, you know that this is one of the biggest advocacies behind creating this show. Jason Harris is also the co-founder and CEO of award-winning creative advertising agency, Mechanism, which was ranked by the FE Index as a top 10 most effective independent agency in the United States, and has worked with companies like Peloton, Ben & Jerry's, Jose Curvo, which I pronounced probably really badly there, which is the liquor brand, Alaska Airlines, Charles Schwab, and OK Cupid, among others. I wouldn't just watch the ad and have it wash over me. I'd really kind of dissect it in my young mind. And then I, w- I realized, oh, someone does that for a living. The, these interstitials between the shows I was watching, that's like a job. That seems really cool. Today, he has been very generous with his time in sharing the knowledge from years of experience and expertise, which is why I am glad to share that in addition to what we will talk about on topics like branding and marketing. Soul and science, which is creativity plus performance. All the messaging, the whole organization is around creating soul and science and an approach and how we offer clients. So in this episode, you are going to learn, number one, the relationships and how to build trust in an age of distrust. Two, the importance of character building habits. Three, achieving personal growth and success in business and so much more. So without further ado, join me in welcoming to the show, Jason Harris. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another fantastic episode of Scale Up with me, Nick Bradley. Today, I am delighted to have on the show someone who's doing some amazing things in his career, particularly in the world of agency, marketing, all that sort of thing. But we're going to talk about his journey in a second, but we're also going to talk about one of his passions, and that is the soulful art of persuasion. And we're going to get right into influence and persuasion on today's conversation. So welcome to the show, Mr. Jason Harris. Oh, hey, thanks for having me, Nick. It's great to be here. You've done some incredible stuff before, obviously, pressing record today. We're having a bit of a chat about some of that stuff. But in terms of what you've built in the world of marketing, I kind of want to start off with that. I like to to get people's kind of origin stories, like getting into the world that you've got into, creating an amazing agency. I think you've just been recognized last year as a CEO of the year for the Drum Magazine as well, the Drum Media Organization. Yep. Where where did it start? Um, Okay, so I know a lot of uh, your listeners and and companies that you work with, they might have a sort of a, a, a pinball entrepreneur experience where they're you know trying to figure out what they want to do they have an idea maybe they start something maybe they work for another company and found a way to do it better i was a little bit of an anomaly and when i was about uh 13 i have a 13 year old now i have a 13 and 11 year old i know you have a 10 and 7 year old and uh, i can't imagine my kid now uh having like seeing the world through his eyes but i was when i was growing up in the you know, in the, in the, in the eighties, I was really a TV junkie. My parents were both teachers and they were academics and there was always reading in the, in the house. And, um, I was much more of a, uh, you know, I read a ton now, but at the time when I was growing up, I was much more about going and experiencing things. And that's how I learned. 
And they were more homebodies that learned through exploration of the pages. And I learned through going out and exploring. And so a lot of times when we weren't going anywhere, I would, I would sort of watch TV instead of reading which, or play sports. But as I watched these shows, I would see these, these TV ads in between. Cause that's when, you know, no, everyone skips ads now and they get digital content or, you know, social media is, is how you build brands today. But at the yeah. time I would watch uh, these TV ads and I would be, I would always critically assess them even as like a 13, 14 year old. And I would be like, does that, oh, wow. does that make, does that make me want to buy, uh, you know, um, buy that Lego set or does that make me want to, you know, have waffles for breakfast or cereal or whatever. And so I always kind of thought about that, which is very weird for a kid. And then so I realized- let's, let's delve into that. I mean, I like yeah. to kind of unpack stuff as, as, as you're talking. Sure. Cool, but sure. so, so what, what exactly were you looking for? You were you at that point in time trying to understand the message and, and let's say the impact or the result of the communication, you know, as opposed to just, I suppose, experiencing what you were seeing. Like, yeah, you know, it was like it was like an early, um, uh, uh, you know, uneducated view on is this message persuasive? What are they trying to communicate? Did they do it effectively? I wouldn't use those words, but I would watch yeah. it and say, hmm, I think they I think that worked and I kind of want that thing. Or, I, oh, the, that Nike ad really spoke to me. Like, I, I want to wear those shoes instead of the busted shoes. <laughs> but, Did you go but, deeper at that point? Did you like busted go, cheap shoes? The busted parents, cheap shoes. You wanted the Nike Air Jordans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, my, the- parents, my parents would always buy me, like, like if Adidas was three stripes, they'd buy me, like, the oh, pair no. of, like, five. You know, oh, the, no, the knockoff. Yeah, the, the knockoff. <laughs> and they'd be like, they're just the same. They're just like half price. I'm a brand junkie, Jason, I, yeah. I, I to this day. And back then, I, I still was like from that sort of thing. But I think I probably looked at those ads, maybe not maybe in the way that you looked at them. And for me, it was about association, right? Like, you know, I any any time there was a hero that was put in front of me of anything I was interested in as a young guy, um, I had to be part of that. So Michael Jordan was massive for me growing up. Yeah, and, and yeah, definitely. Huge um definitely in toys and stuff like that star wars but a lot of that was also about you know being around others who are in that sort of tribe but but did you did you kind of emotionally connect at that point with with what was going across did you realize that you know it was an association with your values or or some of the things i just mentioned then or was yeah, it- i don't even know if i like knew i had values at that point i just i just knew I, it kind of made the leap from uh, uh, I wouldn't just watch the ad and have it wash over me. I'd really kind of dissect it in my, in my young mind. And then I, w- I realized, Oh, someone does that for a living. Like the, these interstitials between the shows I was watching, that's like a job that seems really cool. And so, and star Wars actually was a big influence on me. I was also a comic book junkie. So I love like Marvel and superheroes. I got into uh, the band kiss, which I talk a lot yep. about. Um, and they sort of, they had this mythology and story and I, I got, I got wrapped up into like really good storytelling as a message. And I reckon we grew up in a very similar time, Jason. Yeah. Yeah. And and so, far off each other. I'm 47. Right. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Exactly. But, yeah. We grew up at the same time. I, mean, Kiss, and, I had Kiss posters on my wall and all that sort of stuff. It was quite eclectic back then. I, I know. I, 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 I was just so, <laughs> I was so into you know, the demon and the star child. And I I was just like, and I would, I joined the kiss army. uh, And I would, I would call radio stations to get them to play kiss music. I was like a a hardcore junkie. And so all of these things sort of, uh, you know, it's a long winded way of answering your question. All of these things sort of uh, were planted seeds in my mind, early elements of persuasion and storytelling and mythology. And that sort of led me into I always knew when I got out of, I went to school for economics to make my parents happy because they're yep. like advertising is not a real career, <laughs> but I always knew that I was going to go into uh, advertising. And so I, I, uh, unlike a lot of people that are, you know, taking on different jobs to find their way, I knew I was going to get this degree, get an advertising job, work at a bunch of places and then start my own agency. Like I had this path since I was, you know, pre-high school 
I can't so I was going to say, so, so yeah. at what point from the 13-year-old looking at the ads versus this is now a career, was that quite instantaneous? Had you made the decision then or the, and then, then moved towards it or was it a little bit later? I don't, I don't think I like consciously made the decision, but I, no. I would always, uh, I had this like passion for looking at messaging, whether, you know, you're on the, the subway or the tube or wherever. And I would, I would just, even if it was, wasn't TV, if it was, you know, print or outdoor or radio, I would just always have a more critical um, strategic lens than, than most people. And, and I didn't really put it all together. Like I'm going to go into advertising, but by the time I was in high school, I, I, I was researching like advertising jobs and agencies and, and, and I was sort of, on that track. I never really oh, got okay. off that track. And I've done that my entire career. Now, I mean, that, that in itself is worth drawing a line under because a lot of people, you know, they have their passions when they're younger, but they get it stomped out of them. Right. And they don't necessarily lean into it. But you, I mean, when you were doing that economics degree, uh, was the, was the feeling that you were always going to transition into the world of kind of yeah. creative ads. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So balancing, so was, balancing the economics actually is quite a powerful thing as well with what you've you know, yeah, for the entrepreneur side. Yeah. And so I, I, I would take like art history classes and communication classes at the same time I was getting an, an economics degree. But there was really two things growing up, which I, th I think it goes back to when you're thinking of businesses. When you when you're not thinking about jobs or your future or career, what are those like instant passion points you have? And I sort of had music. I'm I'm. Oh, it was always into, you know, I talk a lot about David Bowie and different bands that I like and how music and personalities drove me. And then this advertising lens. And I was in a couple bands uh, as well. And I wasn't talented enough musically to actually make that a career. So I sort of had two things that I loved. And so I, I went into like the easier one because I wasn't, you know, well, that, I can't sing that well. I'm, that's debatable. Was, that's debatable. As we say, the world of marketing and let's say good marketing, good good yeah, messaging yeah. is is pretty pretty crowded, right? So to stand out and build something successful is not easy. That's true. That's true. So let's let's play around with what happened then. Did you go into an ad agency first off to learn the ropes and and have mentors around you, or did you go straight into kind of starting your own thing? Yeah. So I I worked probably for about ten years at four or five different advertising agencies. I actually worked at uh, one uh, that was UK based and it's called Legus Delaney. Um, and that was, that was uh, really started in London. I worked there. I worked at Shia Day, which is a pretty well-known agency, TBWA Shia Day. Um, I worked at a design firm. I worked uh, on the brand side for uh Miller Coors, which is now Molson Coors. Yep. And so I, I sort of worked in these different aspects. I also worked in uh, brand management, production, strategy. So I worked in different areas too, to really learn the business. And probably that was probably like a, a decade to do that, uh, maybe a little bit less. And then like halfway through that time period, I started taking a journal and I would write uh, what I loved about the different places I worked and what I hated, like the culture that I liked or the leadership style that I liked. And by the time uh, I started an agency with uh, three other friends, uh, it kind of came together. I launched the company with like a value system of uh, okay. how we were going to, how we were going to approach and build a culture based on the experience. So I was, I was really, um, I had an endpoint in mind and I was kind of collecting information to get to that endpoint. Was that, was that more intentional or intuitive, do you feel? Probably more intuitive. Um, okay. But I did have that entrepreneurial spirit. I just felt like I didn't know enough to start something at the beginning. And right. then I wanted to learn, really learn the ropes before I, I tried to do it. And then I wanted to start something before I was, um, not that it's ever too late to start something, but before I couldn't afford to like not make money. You know what I mean? Like it had to be in I that the feeling. It had, <laughs> yeah. It had to be in that sweet spot of like, I'm young enough that like I'm not supporting a family, 
but I'm uh, but I'm also not green enough that I don't know what I'm doing. So I kind yeah. of that's another that's another point I think to highlight to people listening in because sometimes those windows. Yeah, I agree with you 100. It's never too late to start, right? If you're in a situation that you hate, then you should lean into the thing that's going to give you the most joy. But at the same time, there is a point where responsibilities change, right? You can't just spend all your money on cars and whatever else and clothes and <laughs> go right, away. That's right. And then you can then you can do it in a different way too. You can do it in a um, either, you know, maybe it's later and you can, uh, downsize everything and, and, and then build back up, or you can be in a career that you hate. Maybe this is more, maybe you didn't hate it, but more on your side where you stockpile some money so you can make a jump and it doesn't have such a, you know, impact on your life. You know, that's yeah, there's, a, there's, a, there's a thing that I'm not sure where it came from. Um, I heard it first from Tony Robbins, but he talked about burning the boats and this idea that if you're going to lean into the world of entrepreneurship, the, the best way to do it, and again, he talks about it like this, is to kind of not have a plan B, right? But I, I often say to people that if, you, if you've got responsibilities, right, family and otherwise, kids that depend on you, um, you know, going into something like that and burning everything just to be successful doesn't work for everyone, right? So, do you think that's dangerous, a dangerous ideology, or do you think it's... I think it works for some people. I think some people need leverage. Right. Yeah. But I think if you if you blanket that across, everyone shouldn't have a plan B. So they have the focus and let's call it like, you know, if it doesn't work, there's no safety net. I think sometimes that can create so much fear in people that they don't take the necessary actions or they don't feel they're in the zone enough to be able to create the value that they need to to transition to that world. Yeah, that's a really good point. The other thing that people never talk about is sometimes your idea just isn't good. Yeah. You know, sometimes your business idea just isn't, <laughs> yes. it isn't, it isn't what you think it is. And uh, instead of like the hustle mentality of grinding it out till it works, sometimes it's never going to work, you know? And I think you people, have, how was people, that? How was your, people yeah. never talk about that. Like, I mean, we, I've started side things outside of um, my company or within my company, like different revenue streams or divisions and you have to know when like the jig is up, you know what I mean? You have to also be intuitive to say, I don't think this is going to work. We got to, we got to call it. Yeah. It's also and, being brave enough to do that too, in terms of sometimes, you know, when you think of outside, sometimes admitting that you were wrong has a, an impact on, you know, again, what others think of you. Sometimes that's an issue. There's obviously money, but to ask the question of you, did, when you started, when you first started your business, okay. And obviously it's, it's, it's very successful now. Did you have some pivots within that? Did you have some transitions where you went down one road and it wasn't right? Or were you, you know, you'd thought about it so much over that decade working for others that when you created it, you know what, you'd already created it years before, actually. So therefore, it was more successful. No, I would say that the business that I currently run, which is, a, you know, 50 plus million dollar net revenue advertising marketing services company with 200 employees, um, it it took, you know, we're, I'm like 13, 14 years into it now. We, we are like every three or four years evolving the company and changing it like constantly. Yeah. And that's partly, I think all businesses have to do that. I mean, it's, it's pretty common that if you're, you know, not evolving, you're dying, but we started as a, you know, production company. So we would do digital production then we became a viral marketing company. Then we became a social media company. Then we became a full service agency that offers every service under the sun and media buying. And then I started like five sub brands. And then during the pandemic, I got rid of all the sub brands and created this idea of soul and science, which is creativity plus performance and nice. all the, all the messaging, all the, um, or the whole organization is around creating soul and science and an approach and how we offer clients. And that's only about a year, a year old now. And well, so I didn't appreciate it was so new actually, because, because I love the terminology. soul. I haven't heard before in the context of yeah. how you describe it. So one of the questions I have for you is why soul? Well, I think soul is never been more important um, today, but you know um, the idea that companies you know, companies aren't what you buy today. It's it, it's not what they sell. It's like what 
what you're what what consumers are buying into. There has to be a bigger idea, bigger proposition when you're talking about branding and companies today. It's not just selling a service or a product. It's a belief and what this company stands for that then creates the products and services. And so we're always thinking when we're building and working with companies and brands, and we work with uh, you know a lot of big brands like Jose Cuervo and Ben and Jerry's. We helped build Peloton for the past six years. Um, we're always thinking about approaching it as not creating an advertising campaign, which might be the end result, but working with a with a brand brand folks to create what the values are and what the company stands for, and then how is that going to show up in the world? And so that's really the soul part. Like, what is the purpose of the company? What what's it what's its reason for existing? What is it fighting against? What's it solving? And then the science part is how do we measure that? And how do we make sure that we're moving units or building brand equity or what, whatever the KPI might be? There always has to be a, a measurement component attached to it. And we have you know data scientists and performance folks. And their job is when we launch something, figuring out how they're going to measure success. And obviously that's an imperative so we keep the client, but it's also an imperative today in business because chief marketing officers have a really short tenure. You know, they have a <laughs> they have like a two year run to to prove success. And so brand building is a long term play. And so they're fighting short and long term at the same time. They have to build shareholder equity. They have to show growth every quarter, but they're also trying to build a brand that can you know, be enduring and meaningful. And so those two things are sometimes in conflict. Yeah, it's a tough uh, gig. I, I started off my career in marketing. I was um, marketing director of Getty Images for a long, for a long time. No way. Um, but what was interesting before that, I used to work for News International for Rupert Murdoch in, in the days when people used to read magazines. So I was in that world for a long time. And what was funny, I actually was involved in the transition of, let's say, more focus on brands to more focus on performance and analytics and data. And yeah. what was interesting, this is around 2006, 2007, when we started to move more into, into content or what we called content, commerce, and community-based websites, right? Um, very early on. And um, it was really interesting because everything we'd done with marketing investment and budgets pre then was, was brand building, which didn't have a lot of metrics behind it, right? You know, how many people went past the billboard sort of thing. And then all of a sudden, you had to start to bring in this data, which was becoming, you know, almost real time. And there were so many people in marketing then who just couldn't make the transition, right? Yeah, that was a big change. I mean, that yeah. was like a sea change. And, you know, it's interesting you mentioned Getty because they, it's like a really powerful brand that they could use a little more soul even now. You know what I mean? Like they never quite. Well, I can say that's an interesting case study for someone like you because, that was a private equity-backed business. It, it yeah. was actually bought and sold, I think, five times. So it went from private equity to private equity, then went to the you know to IPO and all this. And everything in that business was built around performance, like to a crazy level. And there was uh, many times I can remember where the brand lost its way because the the number crunches, right? the spreadsheet jockeys, were more yeah. interested in the performance. And that's that's how it happens, right? Yeah, and then like, things that's happen. why you need that's why you need the balance, right? So, question I've got for you on that yeah. is when you're working with, let's say, a more traditional brands as opposed to a brand that's kind of you know starting, do you find it difficult sometimes to influence your methodology and your belief to to a leadership team which has not gone through that before, or are people more businesses more now understanding the power of brands? I think. Um, Yes, it's always challenging, but I think there's, you know, companies come to us for, they're either really well-known brands, like a brand like a Quaker or a Charles Schwab or, yep. you know, some, some brand that's been around for a long time. And they come to us because they want uh, to kind of ignite a resurgence. So they're already in the mindset of, we want to modernize and change. And so we don't get that much uh, pushback necessarily when we try to add things on sometimes like um, purpose or impact or what are you doing 
that's good in the world or leaving the world a better place that we get a lot of brand all brands aren't ready to accept that yet that mm. they need to do something for the greater good they'll find their purpose and why they exist and what they're offering their consumer or their customer but then we might take it one step farther and say all right what but what good are you what are you doing with that idea and putting good in the world for like legacy of the brand that that doesn't always sell does that contextualize a little bit with how the world's changing. And there's a big brand here in the UK that was, um, I believe it was sold. I know it was valued at over a billion dollars uh, called Gymshark. And- Oh, I know Gymshark. Yeah. They, were, they did a lot of like direct response. They did. And, and ads, if, if you think, yeah. speak to Ben Francis, um, who's the CEO, still a young guy, he, he says it's all about the community that he built around it. So yeah. the fact that they sell athletic wear or products like that, it wouldn't matter what they sold because the community is so strong. And I think sometimes, you know, my understanding is brands that don't think about maybe the bigger impact that they're making certainly now is the, the consumers. Consumers are changing, right? Obviously, different generational um, di- generational ideals coming through. I suppose there's a risk then back to performance of the longevity of a brand. That's right. And there's all these studies that have come out recently, uh, some of them done by the 4As, which is a trade association. And, you know, something like... Um, I'm not sure these are the exact numbers, but they're around the numbers. 82% of uh, consumers could care less if brands went, what, you know, brands went away tomorrow, they would find another brand to fill their need. But 53% of consumers uh, will buy products from a brand that is doing something positive. And so yeah, okay. you're kind of balanced that idea of like relevancy uh, and, and you, you know, you can use data and, and research to make your point that by standing for something, you might be putting yourself out there. You might alienate a small sector of consumers that don't agree with your point of view, whatever it might be. But you're going to build long term, you know, love and, and equity and brand relevance where people won't want your brand to disappear. So it's always a balance. Um, and it, you know, different brands come into, you know, working with an agency and they have different problems to solve, you know, they have different issues. So you really have to sort of take it case by case. Let's segue, let's segue into persuasion now, because I think, you know, I want to talk about the importance or that really, really how communication maybe has evolved and changed, certainly these days, because one of the things that I thought was interesting in your book, The Soulful Art of Persuasion, is this idea of trust in an age of distrust. Yeah. So how, yeah. how, how do you approach that? I mean, th- th- is there a, an increase in, the, in the, the transparency of messaging now because people are maybe looking for things to not be as right with fake news and all that? I'd love to see how you approach that. Yeah, I think brands today have to be uh, super transparent. They have to be accountable. And the thing that they always forget is they have to be consistent. Yeah. And I think, I think that's what builds trust. Those three, those three ideas, that's what, how you build a brand and you build trust with, with the consumer, with the audience. And when you're, you know, a brand like Walmart, that's, you know, during the pandemic talking about how much they care about their workers. But when you drill down, there's some of the, they were some of the poorest paid employees in the world but they're asking them to like come in and 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 go in uh for work or there's all these sort of dichotomies and brands where they might say one thing and have like a puff puffy message but they're not delivering on it and they're going to get found out and when you're transparent and say you know this is what we believe in and we're constantly going to improve on it we're not there yet that's when you build trust with your audience and so we're always looking under the hood of companies we work with, if we have an idea of what their soulful message might be, what their purpose might be, make sure that there's no issues. And a lot of the issues can be start internally. You might be saying one thing to the consumer, but you're not, you don't even have those actions for your own employees. So you have to dissect that and interrogate it before you even talk about it. Yeah, um, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. So it's one of those conversations, Jason, that we could talk about for ages because because one of the things I was curious about is 
is values and behaviors back to culture and how much an organization today needs to live and breathe the values of the brand both internally and externally yeah it starts internally okay interesting you know, that's that's where the work has to start you yeah, have to buy. What you propose as well when you work with it with a client do you kind of look inside the business first to kind of get get what's going on there to be able to help translate that externally so so yeah we'll have ideas for how to rally their employee base sometimes we won't have time or the purview to do that deep dive because they have a campaign that needs to come out because they have a product to sell. Uh, so we won't really have that step, but we'll have like, when we present ideas, we'll have like an employee section. Like this is how you can translate that internally, whether they do it or not is, is usually up to them. You know, we're not, we're not um, a consultancy that's, that's trying to solve the internal problems, but we, 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 we make leaps and assumptions that they're going to do that you know, or that that's already taken care of or that, that their employees will be a brand like Gymshark, which you brought up about their um, hardcore members and Peloton is a similar company where they sell really expensive hardware. Um, and it's a, but it's really a membership and the way they've developed the community to support the community. That's what their uh, secret weapon is. And that's why they have really low churn. And even though they've been in the business press for, you know, spe like spending money and building a plant they shouldn't have built and hiring 8,000 employees when they didn't need to, um, you know, not that they had the best business practices, but at the end of the day, they have, you know, six and a half or 7 million members that aren't going to leave the, they're not going to churn. They're going to stay with Peloton and that subscription base keeps going. And those members, the way the, the products designed and the way they're set up through social media, they're very supportive of each other. So it's super sticky. Um, and that's a long winded way of saying a brand like Gymshark or Peloton, they couldn't get there if they didn't start with the employees being passionate and believing in the brand. Cause then that translates to their consumer and their members. Cause I guarantee you Gymshark super successful. They've got some magic, uh, passionate employees, I'm sure. So if you look at the way it's been done, and again, whether it's whether it was intentional by Ben or not, I think he was just passionate about the world of fitness. But like you know, any of the any of the buildings, the places of work, their gyms, right? You know, everything is set up for living and breathing that health and fitness um, mentality that then translates into, into everything they do with their with their work as well. But I love yeah. what you said. One of the one of the um, one of the things I've always remembered from my days of marketing, which I don't do as much anymore, but um, you know, the definition I heard of a brand that always resonated was a promise of consistency. And yeah. as, soon as, as soon as there's ever a conflict between those two things, that's where things start to fall apart. And I've found that to be true quite a lot. Yeah, that's very true. And, and it also plays into branding and marketing when, you know, an example I always, I always think of is, do you remember the, those Seki's the most interesting man in the world? Yeah. Campaign. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. So, yeah. with uh, whenever a new CMO comes in and takes over a brand, the conventional wisdom is they're going to reboot it and do their own thing, put their stamp on it, and that creates an inconsistency for the um, audience. And so, a new CMO came in to that brand. They got rid of the most interesting man, and now you can't even really remember yeah. what their marketing is or what their brand stands for. Um, and, and so you get inconsistency can really be the, the death knell for a brand unless it's not working. If it's not working, you need to find something that's going to work and then be consistent with it. Um, and, and that's really how it works. But um, when I think about your world in private equity and really trying to uh, blow up companies to have higher profit margin, lower operating costs, uh, you know, making assumptions, but I think that's a lot of what it is. Right? A lot like, of it. A lot of it is based on the numbers. So on the numbers, yeah. Seventy percent of evaluation, for example, is still on having, you know, fantastic profitability, low churn rates, uh, recurring revenue, subscription models, long term contracts. Some of the things you were saying beforehand. The thirty percent of evaluation is on more intangible things. Oh, that's interesting. Pizza, so there is, yeah, you know, people. Uh, quality of the brand, quality of the customer base. So where you look at the concept of raving fans or a community or a tribe, 
there will be an overlay of that that is put into the valuation of a business. Yeah. And sometimes the that short and long-term focus um, can't always be in harmony, right? So sometimes you have to invest in the community um, or doing something that uh, for good that builds brand equity that costs money that might mess up a quarter. You know, it might not have the same results or it might have flatline. So you're not growing, but yeah. you're, but you're, but you're setting yourself up for longer term success. And I think that's always a hard thing to balance. Um, I like the way you've described it in terms of um, soul um, yeah. right? and, and the word of performance or science, because, because I believe that there is a you have to understand both and and in my world of private equity traditionally it was more about the science right um and not thinking about the long term but i know some examples of businesses i've been involved in where a decision was made to your point in a quarter and it bombed in the quarter it might have even bombed in the year but if you go back looking in history right and you look at a decision that was made that had an impact over the next three to five years like you know taking market position or market share um, doing something powerful, then actually people have become heroes later. And it's hard to, even to this day, it's hard to judge that. So that's where that's where you're still backing the person a lot. There is still a lot of- is that, That's where that 30% comes in? Yeah, there is a, there's a bit yeah. about track record, but there's a bit about certainty. So one of the best definitions of influence that I ever heard, and it came from Cialdini, I think, I can't quite remember exactly, but he said- um, you know, really, really effective influence is not your ability to convince someone that they should believe anything, but it's your ability to convince them that you believe. I think that's very well said. And that's a lot of um, how I think about persuasion. And, and I, I think a lot of um, persuasion today is not so much of what... It, it's really does come down to the person and the personal character. Like, do you believe this person and do I want to follow this person? And it go it translates to brands too, right? Brands and people very similar. Yeah. Yeah. And so do I believe this brand? Do I trust this brand? Do I trust this person? It's less about factual uh, arguments, not the data doesn't play into it, but it's much persuasion really is about personal character and developing personal character so that, you build trust and people don't see you as um, just trying to do something for profit or for your own uh, greed or your own excess, but you're doing something that's going to benefit both parties. And that's really, you know, the heart of the book is four principles that I found that really lead to the personal character development, which makes you a more influential person. Um, and you know, those are, uh, you know, I'll just rapid fire. Oh, I've, got them, them. I've got them here in front of me, Jason, as well, just so you know. <laughs> oh, good. All right. Yeah. All right. Cool. You know, you said about the first one was, you know, persuasive people are original. Yeah. Um, and I love the fact that, you know, as you said, they're coming from a place of authenticity, um, and, and being true to themselves, but I, which I actually think can be quite challenging sometimes because, as you get older, I found that you become more comfortable in your skin. And it's not just an age thing, right? But there is definitely something about, I just don't give a shit <laughs> anymore, right? right. And that, that, that is quite intoxicating, right? Because you kind of don't care too much what others think. But what you're suggesting here a little bit is the more that you're like that, the more that you're kind of, it doesn't mean you don't care, but it means that you're showing up as who you are, right? Warts and all, belts and braces, vulnerability. That's incredibly powerful in terms of persuasion. Yeah, it goes back to like the authenticity and the trust and truth. If it doesn't mean everyone's going to like you, people no. might like you more if you show up in every situation as the way you think people want you to show up. People might have a more uh, initial fondness for you, but they're going to not trust you because they're going to understand something's inauthentic. And when you are yourself and you allow yourself to be vulnerable and tell stories about your life and how things impacted you and the hardships you've gone through, it allows other people to open up and connect with you on a much deeper level. And that's how you build that trust, both for your employees, for your investors, for your customer, whatever it might be in your personal life. And so it's a hard lesson to learn. Certainly gets way easier as you get older because 
you give less fucks because you have less time. You know, you're like, let's just probe that a second. Why do you do you reckon it's that? Because I've been thinking, I don't have an answer, right? I'm just thinking there is a point where you're more impressionable, I think, and maybe not as confident when you're younger, right? And therefore impacted a lot by your environment and you're trying to work out who you are. And as you get older, there is that like not giving a fuck as much to the point yeah. it feels so much better. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's a, if it's a mortality thing uh, or you're like, I only have X amount of years of work, you know, ahead of me, or I, I got to make a change now or whatever it is. Yeah. But I think it does have to do with why am I, why am I spending my energy worrying about things that may or may not happen? Why am I spending my time mm. with people that are not giving me the things I want back? And you sort of narrow, you start to narrow cast what you do with your hours. And that allows you some sense of freedom and to be more yourself. And when you're younger and you're, you're moving around, you're trying to figure out your place in the world. It is definitely harder. But if I had to, if I had to go back and um, be more myself earlier on, I, I think things would have, maybe gone quicker for me or faster, or I could have had better personal relationships. Um, but I, I wish, I wish I, I had done that earlier on. It took me, it took me a little while to do it. Part of also being yourself is, um, and being vulnerable is, you know, being a storyteller to a set, a degree and knowing how things impacted you in your life, whether you were growing up or, uh, role models or, books you read or music or whatever you consume or have gone through really not, they're not just events, but what it, how did that create who you are and how do you create a story around it? And when you tell those stories to people, they'll tell you a story back and then you've, you've got a bond and you've got trust. And that's part of being, being yourself as well is um, understanding the story of where you came from and who you are and, how you were developed and then not being afraid to, to talk about it, not having this, you know, persona or this version of yourself that you think the person you think you want the person to see of you. Um, yeah. And that's a hard thing to learn, but. Um, An important you know, lesson though. Cause I mean, I, as, as I said, you know, earlier on in our conversation, the, the term of identity, cause I find that um, when business owners, founders come to me and they're trying to create something, with their business, a lot of the times people have been on a treadmill for years and they can't break through a ceiling, right? Like I've, I've had some people come to me and like, I said, how long have you had your business at this level? And it may not be a, an unsuccessful business, but it's not where they want it to be. And sometimes it's like 10 years. I'm wow. Like, wow, seriously? And half the time, it's not the business that's the problem. It's the, it's the sabotage, the some cases subconscious sabotage that that founder is putting on themselves to not be able to take their business to a level right which all comes down to how they see themselves so it's an wow yeah it is fascinating like like they can't break through because they feel like this is as far as it's as far as they can do it as far as they can take it yeah they don't believe it comes into things like self-worth and self-belief but as soon as you that's why I, i often say work on yourself first right? Whatever that is, right? You know, understand yeah. understand who you need to be. Uh, and then all the other things around you, it's not just business, it obviously happens in life as well. All the other things around you start to move and you create momentum from that. That's true. And I mean, I think it goes back to even this conversation and the idea of, of your podcast. It's not, it's not the mechanics of how do you scale up a business, right? It's what's behind it. It's that like, put the veil down, drop the drapes and really understand, like look in the kimono of that's right. what's really going on. And, and having a conversation like this is way more valuable than the, you know, spreadsheet and oh God. Oh God, yeah. how I, how I scaled up and squeezed more margin out of that one client or, you know, whatever. No, exactly. I mean, you know, you can read books on that. They're called textbooks. <laughs> right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not, not to say that people don't need the mechanics, you know, and and like, you know, obviously, because you've got 11 habits in the book, right? And yeah. I think it's important to reflect on on those you need it, but you have to contextualize, to use the word again, against, you know, where you're at. 
And I often say, like, if people if people come and do stuff with me, you know, it's it's the whole saying of the fire hydrant into the mouth. You know, like, there's so much that's been done here in the world of private equity and scaling businesses. I can give it to you all, but I only really want you to take two or three things. Yeah, the two or three things that you're going to take action on, which is going to get you to the next level, whatever that level is. Absolutely, I love that. So let's go through the let's go through. We're not going to go have time to go through the full eleven habits. Oh, yeah, I do, I do yeah, want to yeah. ask you about the habits, but the second the second um, core pattern in your book is generosity. Yeah, just explain that and unpack that for me. Yeah, so uh, generosity is this idea of going through business with whenever you cross paths with someone, and obviously this is like perfect case scenario. It doesn't always happen. Whenever you cross paths with someone you leave them a little bit better off. That creates um, you to be a more influential, persuasive person. And it's changing your mindset of what can this person do for me into what can I do for this person? How can I help them? And that's going to come back like tenfold, like through your network, through your career, through your advancement. It's always going to come back. This was, this is why I call them, uh, you know, these are the main, core principles, but practicing this stuff becomes habitual because, you know, you might, you might be born and come out and be yourself and know how to do that. Right. Um, That and be a storyteller. That was easier for me than this idea of generous. I was not when I started a business, a generous person at all. I would hoard my contacts. You know, if, if another agency person needed a producer for a job, I would be like, I don't have anyone, you know, I would just, I would think, or <laughs> I love, know, I love your honesty, Jason. And, and to yeah. be honest, I was like that too. So don't worry. We're, 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 and we're I would on. just, I would hold everything close to the vest. And I thought that's, that was how business was done. You protect mm. your contacts, your network, you protect your clients at all costs. And that's how you build your book and build your business. And then you realize over time when you do plateau and you do flatline, and your network has shrunk that the way you deal with the world around you and, and in your business is if you're a generous person, things are going to flow back to you like tenfold. And so, you know, I don't have the science measurement piece perfectly figured out. I just know from experience that it works. And so when you, you know, are positive, when you respect other people, when you share advice, you know, people call me that are starting an agency and they wanted my time. I would, you know, in the past, I would have said, I don't have time or, you know, good luck. Now I'll spend like an hour on them, giving them advice so that they save time on things that, you know, I went through. And so that idea, then all of a sudden, before you know it, there's a client that comes to them. That's too big. They pass on to me because we've created this, this bond and you don't do it expecting something in return. You do it out of the principle of being a generous person so that you are more persuasive and influential and it does just work. And uh, I had to, I learned it the hard way because I, I was not uh, born uh, a generous person. Like I was born probably a pretty selfish, self-centered, you know, a bit egotistical person. And I had to develop that in business over time to change completely like sea change the way I approached others in my, and in, in my, you know, peers, peer group. I had a, um, so I mentioned beforehand, I had this kind of transition from the world I was into the world I'm in now. Um, I first heard through that experience, um, the quote by Zig Ziglar, the very famous quote that if you help enough people get what they want in life, you have everything you want and need in life. Right. I love that quote. Uh, well, you know what? It's, it's, it was such a powerful quote for me. I then quit my, my job in private equity. I started this podcast and I decided that I needed to change the, the cup of my life from being all about success, achievement and money into service. Yeah because I was massively unfulfilled, right? So if you bring that back to the, the point around generosity, um, I, I wasn't generous either. I was just take, take, take. And that caused almost a breakdown, right? A grating of my, my values and then causing me to be sick. So, so again, I, I make that point. Wow, here. so you got physically sick from that? Oh, man, I, I, I broke all the teeth in the right side of my jaw one night. 
Holy shit, from grinding your teeth? Yeah, one night from heaps of stress of stuff going on. Oh, my God. But, but the reality of it, if I look back now, we're talking a few years back now. If I look back, it was because I was, I was my, my contribution to the world was consumption, right? Like take, 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 not sharing, not giving, mainly driven possibly by fear of, of that. But the, the point is, once I changed that and decided to give more to the world, okay, as I said, the first thing really was the podcast, the opportunities that have come from that, that one change in belief system, which then changed actions, is I, I, I can't even define it. It's like that, that transformation. Yeah, it's been, been radically transformative. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to make that point here because I think it's it's generosity is one way of saying it. Um, you know, uh, giving without giving without expectation. For me, there is a bit of an expectation. Not that I'm going to get something back on that day from that person in that moment, but it does two things. I know that I'm going to feel better in myself, so therefore I attract different things, and I also have a belief that. If you do good by people and you do that all the time and it becomes, to your point, a habit of what you are, it's just going to come back to you, right, in whatever way. And it, you can't define that again, but it just does. It just does. Uh, it, yeah, it's, that's been monumental for me um, in my career. And uh, it, took, it took a little bit of... of <laughs> it takes some time. Of, <laughs> it, it took some learning, but I think you also realize that when you're on the consumption side, there's no fulfillment. There's no, it's like putting coal into a steam engine, you know, like you just have to keep doing it. Like it's never, it's never complete. Yeah. You feed it, you're feeding it. Right. And, it and becomes, then you're like, I need this a monster. <laughs> I, I did that much last quarter. I need to do this much this quarter. I, you know, oh, yeah. what it, it just, it never, it's never ending. Right. It, it can go. It's an, it's, Whatever. It's the treadmill I mentioned before. And again, any business owners listening to this conversation, you know, you might be on that treadmill right now. And the way to break it is to, is to challenge some of those maybe beliefs that aren't serving you. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and so one, uh, I think we, if you don't mind, uh, if I can, like the, the third one is about understanding other people and being empathetic. I think that's a little, um, uh, people understand that if you've read you know, how to win friends and influence people. It's sort of the, the tenant of that idea where you see people as the, as, as how you're connected, the commonalities versus differences. But the last one, this idea of soulful, this is really when my world changed and my view of business changed. And that's why I put this one as that this fourth, fourth principle. So you're yourself, you're generous, you try to understand other people and then soulful is being inspirational. And when you're inspirational, oh, you wow. are more persuasive and you are more influential. And the, the way I did that was I had, you know, since I was a kid, the way we started the conversation, wanted to go into advertising, wanted to start a business, start a business. It was successful. Then I got to a place where I didn't hit a ceiling of revenue or like that I couldn't see myself going past that. I had a ceiling of joy and happiness and I had, that's the ceiling that I hit. And I realized, so that's my, my whole legacy or my whole career is building an agency that sells products and services. And I help these brands become more successful and I sell deodorants and sneakers and ice cream and financial services and like, that's sort of it. And that's when I got um, really uh, disillusioned. And I thought um, the, you know, the ride was sort of over. And, and that's when I um, started taking the skills that I have in advertising and branding and doing those services for uh, good. So really taking, uh, it's really the skills that I have and applying them to, you know, um, fighting, creating campaigns to fight sexual assault on college campuses, working on mm. ending child poverty in the U.S. with, uh, you know, comic relief in the U.S., which does Red Nose Day and some other yep. things. And really applying the team and the resources. Um, and we do about 10% of, of all of our, our time at the company uh, to use our skills to, to do work, to make the world a better place. 
uh, getting people to vote, civic, uh, getting, you know, um, civic engagement and uh, fighting anti-hate and racism. So really trying to do um, what we are doing for brands, but doing it to make the, leave the world a better place. And that's how I found a lot of um, happiness and fulfillment. And I, I believe that anyone, whatever you're doing as an entrepreneur or business owner, you've developed skills, whether they're, it's you know, financial literacy that you can teach, whether it's uh, you know, giving back to the community that you've started your business in, whatever it might be, there's ways to leave your mark while building a successful business. That too has intrinsic value because when you're inspirational, you're more persuasive, you're more influential, your business will thrive even more. Or you have, so more, that, you have more energy around it too, don't you, Jason? So therefore, the way you show up changes. The way you show up changes so you don't plateau and you can break through that ceiling. But just like we're expecting brands to stand for something more, your own company needs to stand for something more as well. And so that was, uh, that was probably nice. around 20... 15 that we did our first pro bono campaign and I'd never wanted to do one thought about doing one we're a for-profit business why would we do something that's pro bono uh and then when we started doing it it really um changed the company benefited and I mean I would love to know as we finish this off right how has it changed you though I mean it it reignited my joy for what I do every day at work. And it allowed me not only to apply those skills and I feel like I'm making the world a better place in some cases when it works, but it also allows me to take those to our for-profit brands and try to get them to do something to leave the world a better place that will help their brand ultimately as well. It doesn't always work, but um, it's just changed my, my whole philosophy and and approach. And the other thing it's done is inspire the employees. You know, the employees want to work at a place that's doing something good, that's putting some good in the world. And so it's, retention's been better, passion's been higher, our culture's stronger. Um, so yeah, it, it reinvigorated me in uh, into where I was burned out. Very similar to how you switched from one side to the other. And you got reinvigorated. It's it's a similar thing. Amazing how that happens. There is similarities between the whole piece for sure. Because as I said, there isn't a day that goes by that someone doesn't send me a note, you know, LinkedIn email or whatever else about something that's been said. You know, it could be a conversation like we're having now, Jason. Yeah. That has changed the direction of what they were doing, uh, which which got exactly. me to start believing that you know the right message at the right time can change anything, right? I love that. And that's a pretty to, to think that you and I have an ability to do that in our, in our various ways is a pretty nice way to live your life. I agree. I agree. It's great. So there we go, mate. We're at time. Right. I'm going to be respectful of your time, Jason. Um, so we've talked in and around uh, Jason's book today a bit. We've talked about a lot of other stuff, but the book is called The Soulful Art of Persuasion, The 11 Habits That Will Make Anyone a Master Influence. And I think the sense that I, the takeaway I have from the conversation is, there is a depth to that, which is it's not just about learning practices and techniques and all this stuff that people think around, around, you know, persuasion and influence. It's really about how you show up, um, which I think is at the core of today's conversation, and actually the core of the book. So absolutely. Jason, where can people reach out to you? I mean, obviously they can find the book in good bookstores, Amazon, all that. Where can they reach out to you personally if they want to connect with you or ask any questions? Uh, yeah. If you want to know more about, the Soulflower to Persuasion, the Soulflower.com is a website that has some info. And then you can find me on, uh, you know, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Jason underscore Harris. And uh, if you want to know more about my company, it's uh, M-E-K-A-N-I-S-M.com. Mechanism.com is the uh, agency. Yeah, very, uh, a very arty way of writing that down, as, as always is the case with creative types. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mean the, the, the way we spelled it? Yeah, yeah. I was looking at it before. Well, I, you know what happened was we um, we had this, we came up with this name, Mechanism, and then Mechanism.com with the CH was taken. 
All right. And instead of arguing, <laughs> instead of arguing about a, a new name, we said let's just make it a K and be. be well, it makes you stand out and, and be yeah, remarkable exactly. too. Well, listen, exactly. um, Jason, it's been awesome having you on uh, Scale Up today. Great, great story, uh, great um, philosophy and approach to both business and life, mate. So um, thank you for coming on. It's been a, uh, a very enjoyable conversation. Absolutely. Thank you, Nick. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. If you enjoy the show just as much as I enjoy creating it for you, then I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode? It really helps me. It helps the show. Plus, it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally, if you want more information about anything you heard in today's show or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, click the link in the show notes now to learn about our coaching, mentoring, and mastermind programs. See you soon.